Amen. Good singing. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Corridor Baptist Church. Good to have you all with us this morning. My name is Steve House. I'm the pastor of Corridor Baptist Church. And uh, for those of you who are visiting, we are very uh, thankful that you chose Corridor Baptist Church to be your place of worship this morning. And make yourself at home. If there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know. Also, we would ask that if you received a visitor packet, and uh, I trust that you did, We'd ask if you would just fill out the visitor card inside and then hand it to one of our ushers, to myself. There's actually a box in the back wall back there that you could place it in, just so we have a record of your visit. This morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, you know, we have a few weeks left before Easter, and man, where has the time gone? It is amazing that we are this far already, three months into 2022, and we're already in, back into daylight savings time, and it just seems like you blink, and you're changing the clock back, and you blink again, you're changing the clock forward. It just seems like time is just flying by. But uh, we've been, uh, last week, we started preparing for Easter, and we're in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, the last part of Isaiah chapter 52 And all of Isaiah chapter 53 deals with the Messiah. And of course, we believe that Jesus Christ was that Messiah. 
We believe that for a reason. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, Isaiah, who actually lived over 700 years prior to Jesus being born in Bethlehem, actually said some things about him, all of which Jesus would fulfill. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we see a few more of those things. So let's go ahead and stand in reverence to God's word. If you don't have uh, your Bible this morning, just listen along to uh, with us. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 2. The Bible says, For he, the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And back up to Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 13, just the first phrase there where God refers to the Messiah as my servant, my servant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we're so thankful. We're thankful for sending your Son to live among us. Lord God, to die, to be buried and to be raised again. Lord, we thank you for the price of our sins being paid for. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, Lord, you'd cause them to see their need this morning. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just bless the preaching of your word. Use it, Lord God, for your glory and your honor. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53. Last week, we also uh, discussed the fact that Jesus fulfilled over 330 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, making a strong, or should I say, making an infallible case that he was who he claimed to be. Why, it was from the book of Isaiah where Jesus stood in his hometown in the synagogue, read from the book of Isaiah, and then made the claim. He said, today this is being fulfilled right before your very eyes. The Messiah is here. Of course, they didn't believe him. They were offended at him. The Bible says that they tried to drive him off of the cliff there in Nazareth, but he managed to get away And thank the Lord, for then he would minister for about three and a half more years, claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, according to mathematician Peter Stoner, the probability that any one man who was not the true Messiah could fulfill just eight of these scriptural predictions was one in ten to the seventeen, followed by seventeen zeros. This mathematician also said to appreciate how large this number is, imagine filling the state of Texas, the entire state, two feet full with uh, silver dollars, marking one with the next and putting it somewhere, blindfolding a a man, spinning him around, and then sending him into Texas and telling him he had to get the red X on the first try. That's pretty improbable. Not impossible, but pretty improbable. Isaiah chapter 52 through 53 contains no less than 24 statements about the Messiah that were all fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And understanding, once again, Isaiah wrote this over seven centuries before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. One of the surprising claims Isaiah makes about the Messiah would be his apparent insignificance. And that's the title of my message this morning, The Insignificance of the Messiah, the insignificance of the Messiah. Notice here the Bible says in verse 2 of Isaiah 53, after calling him a servant in verse number 52, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus on purpose came and looked like just an average man. As a matter of fact, he came and lived as less than an average man. 
And to that end, the people would say, well, this is just an insignificant individual. Today we have a term for that. It's called non-essential. This is just a non-essential individual, an insignificant individual. How in the world could he be the Messiah? Why Jesus would not come as an undercover agent who would have an escape should things begin to unravel and go wrong. Jesus walked with men as a man. He afforded himself no earthly or carnal advantages. Though the Bible tells us that he was God and he put on that flesh and he came and dwelt among us, he dwelt among us as a man. Now he never emptied himself of his deity. He was always God. But he did empty himself of so many other things. The Bible tells us he made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient, became obedient even unto the death of the cross. So I want us to consider this morning why the world would consider Jesus to be insignificant. And there are three reasons that I want to go over this morning, three of which are covered right here in the book of Isaiah. And the first reason is found in Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 13. Behold my servant. You know, in order to become an elitist today, you have to have many followers. You have to have many people who are willing to serve you. Many people are willing to do this for you and willing to do that for you. One of the reasons I believe Jesus was considered insignificant, one of the reasons that the Messiah is considered insignificant, is number one, because he was a servant. Because he served. Rulers don't serve. They expect to be served. Ronald Reagan once said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. And the reason for that is because our modern-day government is not here to help you. They're here to help themselves. They're not here to serve, which was what they were originally supposed to be for. They're all about being served. And the most servants that they can have, the better that they feel. How did our government officials aid us during the pandemic besides printing a bunch of money? While chanting the mantra, we're all in this together, tens of thousands of businesses were closed forever, leaving non-essential families to lose everything. The governor of California enforced some of the harshest lockdowns in the country, and in November of 2020, he was photographed eating in a very expensive restaurant, which, by the way, was off-limits, the French Laundry. What a name for a restaurant, the French Laundry, an expensive restaurant. You can't get into that restaurant without spending a lot of money. He was in there with many wealthy guests who were celebrating the birthday of a wealthy lobbyist named Jason Kinney. Not only were they eating inside the restaurant, none of the guests were social distancing or wearing masks. To make matters worse, among the guests were two high-level members of the California Medical Association. And they were doing exactly what they had told everyone else, you'll be arrested if you'll do it. Well, he would later apologize and say it was bad judgment, but you know what would happen to you and I if we had such bad judgment would have been arrested for it. But you see, rulers don't serve. They expect you to serve them. Among the non-essential businesses that were forced to shut down were the many hair salons. Yet in September of 2020, right in the midst of the pandemic, Nancy Pelosi got caught red-handed getting her hair done in a San Francisco hair salon without a mask. Her reaction when getting caught was to demonize the hairstylist who said, who she said tricked her. She's a, she's a lawmaker, but she's a ruler. And I remember watching the interview as they began to question her, and she became incensed, like, how dare you question me? I'm the ruler. You're the servant. So serve. In April of 2020, while threatening to arrest any rebels who congregated, 
or committed unthinkable crimes like getting their hair done during the pandemic, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot asked, was asked why she could get her hair done. And her response, this is an exact quote, I'm the public face of this city, she said. I'm on national media and I'm out in the public eye. I'm a person who takes their personal hygiene very seriously. So I guess us non-essential people are not to take our hygiene very seriously. Hey, the point I'm trying to make here is this. Rulers today don't serve. They want to be served. And the more servants that they have, the better they feel about themselves. And how dare you question them? Why, even here in our own state in December of 2021... Our own beloved governor, who at the time was arguing to make masks permanent in Oregon, attended the LGBTQ plus Victory Fund's 30th anniversary gala in Washington, D.C., where masks were still being mandated. Photos surfaced of the event in which no one practiced social distancing or mask wearing, despite the event taking place indoors in a city where masks were still required. And then, of course, during this year's Super Bowl, which took place just last month, the many officials and elitists who attended the indoor event in a city that still required masks indoors did so without masks, further cementing the fact that they believe we are here to serve them as our officials. They are not to serve us. But you see, I'm not being overly critical. I'm just saying that is the... That is the mentality of rulers. And this is nothing new. That was the mentality of rulers in Jesus' day. Let me mention one more. Dr. Fauci, who proclaimed, When they criticize me, they're criticizing science because I represent the science. During the pandemic, who said we're all in this together, became the highest paid government official during this time that the common non-essential Americans are struggling just to put fuel in their cars. I'm just saying this. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, I'm saying this. The rulers today expect to be served. They don't expect to serve. One of the reasons I believe that Jesus was considered non-essential because he claimed to be a king and yet he was serving. Jesus was different and would be considered insignificant or even non-essential because he was a servant. He was born to non-essential parents. He had suffered even more than the common man in response to the well-to-do scribe who said, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. Jesus warned and he said, are you sure? You'd have to give up your elitist status if you're going to follow me. You're going to have to start serving people rather than being served if you are going to follow me. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse number 20 to that scribe, he said uh, unto him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus said, I am such a servant, I don't even have a place to go. Are you sure you want to come with me? We're sleeping under the stars tonight. Why, even the foxes have holes, even the birds have their nests, but I don't have any place to go. He was God of gods and Lord of lords, creator of all. Yet Jesus allowed himself to be completely reliant upon God the Father and wholly became compliant to the point that God the Father would say, Behold, my servant Do you realize how Jesus had to empty himself? King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of all, to be called the servant. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says, In the beginning was the word. And by the way, that word, word, is a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the Messiah, The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is a powerful portion of scripture. It talks about Jesus. It talks about the Messiah before his incarnation, before he became God in the flesh. The Bible tells us that he created all things, including life itself. And yet he emptied himself to become a servant. Colossians chapter 1 verse number 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of every creature. Firstborn means that he is Number one means that he's a ruler. doesn't mean he was born first. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This just makes what Jesus did for us all that much more amazing, that he created us, and yet he came down and served us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, we are reminded, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. The Bible tells us he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. God became man To serve man. Say, Pastor, I just don't understand that. Hey, you're not alone, neither do I. But by faith, I believe it. And I trust it. So Jesus served. The number one reason, I believe, he was so insignificant. Why he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Why he was in the world, and the Bible says that the world rejected him. Jesus made it his calling to fulfill the will of the Father, and that would be the first one he would serve. Even when the will of the Father contradicted the desires of the flesh. Remember that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. This is a hard thing for us to understand, that, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh. He put flesh on him. He became man, and he was in all points tempted like as we are. Think of all the ways that your flesh is tempted throughout the day. All the ways that your flesh wants to do something, but common sense and or the Holy Spirit tells you you ought not do it. All the times that you've got to bite your tongue. Ooh, I really want to say this, but I know I better not. That is a temptation of the flesh. You realize that. All the times that you want to maybe even haul off and and hit somebody. Oh man, I, I really want to do this. The flesh really desires to do this, but I know better. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points. Like as we are. He had the flesh, just like we have the flesh. Uh, However, he also had the fullness of God that dwelt within him bodily, which allowed him to live the perfect life. Whereas you and I can say, well, no one is perfect except Jesus. Live the perfect life. Was in all points tempted like uh, as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus had fasted for 40 days... And Satan told him to turn the stone into bread. Jesus' body said, I'm physically hungry. And that sounds like a good idea. And he could have. Except he allowed himself to be limited according to the conditions of the flesh. In other words, he was faced with the same feelings, often the same desires and same emotions that you and I are faced with. Yet he chose to be a servant rather than to assert his authority and say, well, I can do this because I'm a ruler. The Bible says he made himself of no reputation. That means he did not assert that authority. He did, as he was told. He even prayed concerning his rest various and various tortures before his death on the cross. He said, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
Jesus in the flesh was not looking forward to the cross. In the flesh, he was not looking forward to being arrested. In the flesh, he was not looking forward to the beatings he was going to take. And the flesh did not want to go. Jesus prayed to God the Father and he said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not what this flesh wants, but your will be done. The King of Kings humbled himself, saying, Not as I will. I'm the servant. The ruler became the servant. The king of kings humbled himself. He completely became the servant. He talked about, uh, or talked about by Isaiah, even proclaiming my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's what drives me. Jesus served. And of course, this would make him insignificant in the eyes of the elitists, in the eyes of the rulers, because they would look and they would say, how can this guy be a king? Jesus also made it a priority not only to serve God the Father, but also to serve mankind. In Mark chapter 10, verse number 45, he made this statement, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, that means to be served. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Imagine this, the Creator serving the creation. Taking orders in the case of his parents and, and officials. Jesus had created his parents, uh, Mary, his stepfather, Joseph. But the Bible says he subjected himself to them. Jesus paid the taxes. Jesus listened. Jesus obeyed. He served. He came washing the feet of man, healing their sick, comforting the cast down, dying uh, for their souls. God the Son became a servant. My, isn't that who you want to be, your king, this morning? Someone who is willing to serve. But not only is he considered insignificant because he became a servant, I also believe number two, number two, that Jesus or the Messiah was insignificant because he succumbed, because he succumbed. Um, This is really interesting what God the Son did for us. First of all, I want you to notice that he succumbed to infancy and childhood. Look in verse number 2, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 2. The Bible says, He shall grow up. We talked about this last week, how there's a direct uh, prophecy that Jesus or that the Messiah would actually be born. He'd, have, he, he'd be a baby. And of course, there are other prophecies that are even more specific that indicate that. But the term grow up, there's a lot that goes with that term. First, to grow up, one must be physically born. Not only Isaiah, but the psalmist also prophesied that the Messiah would be physically born. In Psalm chapter 2, verse number 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. To be begotten means to be born. Jesus is called the only begotten uh, Son of God. The, uh, this is why he is called the only begotten of the Father. In John chapter 1, verse number 14, the only begotten of the Father. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus said that if you want to, be, uh, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You know, Jesus never had to be born again because his... Immediately upon his birth, he was already the Son of God. John tells us, as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You and I become the sons of God by accepting Christ as Savior, by believing, by being born again. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. We are all born physically, every single one of us. Born of the flesh, 
but born sinners. He said, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there's this second birth you and I have to go, go through by confessing our sins, professing Jesus Christ, accepting him as personal Savior, believing on him in the heart. That's being born again. Jesus never had to be born again. He was the only begotten of the Father. That means, well, he was born the Son of God. You and I are born men and women, but we can become the sons of God by accepting Christ as Savior. As many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the sons or the daughters of God. Jesus, on the other hand, would be born the Son of God. John 1.18 calls him the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.18 says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten or born, physically born, Son of God. Well, seven centuries prior to that, Isaiah prophesied that he'd be born. That he would grow up. Though still God in the flesh. Jesus was 100% baby, 100% child, and 100% man. Have you ever wondered, when did Jesus learn he was God? Do you realize that when Jesus was born, he was born an infant. He emptied himself of all that knowledge. He completely emptied himself, placing his full trust in God the Father. Thus, he literally grew up before him as a tender plant. The Bible says, as a root out of dry ground. In other words, God the Father, I completely trust God the Father. I'm going to empty myself of all that knowledge, not of deity. He was still God. It's hard to understand, isn't it? But he became a baby. You know, as a baby, he did not know who he was. Did you know who you were as a baby? Did you know who you were as a six-month-old? Probably not. Most of us do not have memories until maybe, maybe one, maybe two, and those are fuzzy, and we don't really know, are those memories or are those just things my parent told me, and I think I have memories? Do You do realize that Jesus went through that same thing for us. He was 100% infant, 100% baby. Scripture says that Jesus both grew and got stronger. He gained knowledge and learned who he was as he got older. Sometime around 12, he perfectly understood who he was, but he had to learn. This was extremely intriguing to Luke. Luke's the only one who mentions this. He was a physician, and he wrote in Luke chapter 2, verse number 40, The child grew. He waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus completely succumbed to God the Father. He completely succumbed to infancy and to childhood. This was something he'd never experienced before. You know, a great illustration is given in the 2018 rescue of the 12 soccer players, ages 11 through uh, 16, and their 25-year-old coach who was trapped in the, in the Tom Lang cave complex in Thailand. You remember this story? How they had been trapped in there? As you know, they went exploring a cave that all the boys had been into many times throughout their childhood. They had just had soccer practice. And all but one of the kids decided, let's go exploring. And, and these were caves that they had grown up in, grown up around. So they all decided that they were going to go into this cave. The only way out was two miles of cave, most of which was underwater once the monsoon started. Now, they had gone in plenty of time before the monsoon season. You might wonder, well, why did they go in? It wasn't monsoon season yet. They went into the cave and then a monsoon hit that trapped them inside of that cave. 
And as I already said, the only way out was two miles of cave, most of which was underwater. They weren't even found until a professional cave diver uh, came upon them 10 days after they went missing. Once found, the quandary was getting the boys out. Most of us will panic traveling two miles through pitch black caves while submersed underwater. I was panicking just watching the documentary. They have a lot of footage of the actual kids, the actual rescue. And I want to tell you something. I had to turn it off a couple times just so I could breathe. I'm very claustrophobic, and most of us are under those conditions. Those cave divers are nuts. They're just crazy. But the decision, how do we get them out? Now that we have found them, they need to be saved. How do we get them out? They thought about digging. That wasn't going to work. They thought about teaching them how to dive. Well, that was an impossibility. Uh, you, could, you could see nothing. And so they're thinking about all these ways. And a Navy SEAL had already died going and, and taking, some, um, uh, taking some air tanks to them. And then as he returned, he, he asphyxiated. You know, most of us will panic traveling two miles through pitch black water. So the solution was something that had never been done before. The boys were dressed in a wetsuit. They were given a buoyancy jacket, a harness, and a positive pressure full face mask that would completely cover their faces. They were given a cylinder with 80% oxygen. It was clipped to their front, a handle attached to their back, and they were tethered to a diver in case they were lost in the poor visibility. They were then given Xanax to control their anxiety, atropine to steady their heartbeats, and finally they were given a shot of ketamine, which rendered them completely unconscious. So in other words, they had to completely empty themselves. As they put on that, that, that wetsuit, and as they put on that, uh, that harness, and as they were tethered to that diver, fortunately for them, one of the divers was an anesthesiologist who had kind of come up with the plan, but he didn't even know if it was going to work. Here, here was an interesting thing about them. These divers, these were not the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs helped, but these were divers who did cave diving as a hobby. And they were told once they went in, now, if this thing goes backwards, you guys are going to be charged, quite possibly, for murder. And to, to hear the, the divers talk about it, they said, we had a plan. It was like cloak and dagger. We had a plan. If something happened, we had a plan, a way to get out and get to the border so that we wouldn't be tried for for murder, because the the public uh, the public perception would have turned completely against them. So, anyways, they took these kids and imagine the the first volunteer. And and how did they determine? Well, it was volu- it was volunteer. So the first volunteer had to get down. He had to put this wetsuit on, and then he had to take a drug. And then he had to take another drug to control his, uh, control his heartbeat. And then, okay, are you ready? We're going to give you a shot. By the way, it was a five-hour trip to get out of the cave. So all these kids knew was, I am either going to go out... And the worst possible, possible thing that I could think of is waking up in a pitch black underwater cave. Or I'm going to wake up on the, on the other side. What's remarkable is they were all saved. Every single one of them. Not a one of them woke up until they were completely safe and had no idea what had happened. That's an amazing thing. But They had to completely put their faith and trust in those divers. 
That's what Jesus did for us. He completely put his faith and trust. No wonder Jesus talked about faith so much. He practiced it just by being born. He completely put his faith and trust in God the Father and allowed himself to be completely empty. You understand there's, there's no turning back. As he was born a baby, and then he began to learn. The Bible says he would grow up a tender plant as a root out of dry ground. The Bible tells us that the child grew. He became full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. This was an unbelievable thing. Jesus completely succumbed. Who would have expected that the Messiah would come as a helpless baby? And yet that's what he was. When King Herod heard that the Messiah had been born, though he didn't believe he was the Messiah. Nonetheless, he heard the wise men calling him the king of the Jews. He sent his henchmen out to kill all the babies in the land. So Jesus, as an infant, could not save himself. He had to rely on God the Father instructing Joseph, his stepfather, to take him out of the country. Jesus doesn't remember the trip to, to Egypt. Any more than you and I remember when our parents took us home from the hospital. We had to completely rely on our parents to put us in the right car seat, which, by the way, now the hospitals are really sticklers about that. I didn't go home in a car seat, probably a box back in those days. But Jesus had to completely rely, something he'd never done through eternity. This is an amazing thing. He completely succumbed to infancy and childhood. He would also completely succumb to weakness and limitations, something that God had never had to do before. A tender plant, a root out of dry ground, describes the life he would live, the hardships he would face. Jesus required food. Matthew 21, 18 through 19, we see him not only hungry, but perhaps maybe even a little hangry. Because the Bible tells us he'd been, uh, he, was, he, he was hungry and he got mad at a fig tree that was falsely advertising. The Bible tells us in Matthew 21, verse number 18, now in the morning as, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it. Now, if you read the Gospels, you understand this fig tree uh, gave all the appearance that it had figs on it. But when he came up to the fig tree, the Bible says there was nothing but leaves only and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. I'd say he was a little hangry. We all know people who get a little hangry. <laughs> people can be the sweetest people in the world. But once they've crossed that line from being a little bit hungry to being very hungry, you don't want to be around them. They flip a switch. It's because, you know, the, the flesh begins to rule. And I'm not saying that that was the case with Jesus, but I am saying he probably was a little bit angry at that fig tree because he was hungry. That fig tree said, and, and I've done a lesson on this fig tree, how that fig tree said, I've got figs. And there's nothing worse than walking up, finding out there's no figs on this tree. After fasting, we read that he being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. He was hungry. The limitations of the flesh. He required water. John nineteen twenty eight. after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I, I thirst, I'm thirsty. 
He required rest. Mark 6.31 He said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure. They had no time to rest. Jesus required, and I think we forget this because we think, well, you know, he came, he could have done whatever he wanted. No, there was no escape clause. He completely limited himself to the weaknesses of the flesh, to the needs of the flesh, to the feelings of the flesh. Jesus succumbed to man's cruelty without seeking revenge. Isaiah 53, verse number 3 He was despised and rejected of men. At any time, he could have said, Oh, yeah? You don't like me? Well, you'll like me after this. No, he couldn't because he limited himself to the flesh. He completely succumbed. Was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. We've known people who sin when they get hangry. Jesus didn't sin. We know people who sin when they get their feelings hurt, not Jesus. Jesus succumbed to humanity without succumbing to sin. He served. He succumbed. Let me give you the third reason that I believe Jesus is considered insignificant, and yet to us he's very significant. The third reason is because he sacrificed Rulers don't sacrifice, rulers don't succumb, and rulers do not serve. All three of which Jesus did. Look at verse number 4 of Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. His sacrifice was not only, uh, or should I say this, his sacrifice was not a casualty. It was part of the plan. In the rescue of the 13 members of the soccer team in in Thailand, two rescuers inadvertently and unfortunately gave their lives. That was not the plan. A 37-year-old former Navy SEAL who was... uh, Uh, delivering three air tanks, lost consciousness and died during his return. A second Navy SEAL died a year later from a blood infection acquired during the rescue operation. Two men died in that operation. They were casualties. And you know what? We lift them up because they sacrificed. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. And all of those soccer players survived because of their sacrifice. But they were casualties. That was not part of the plan. These deaths were possibilities. And they knew that going in. But their hope was to survive, to live. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident, but was in fact part of the plan. When Jesus was arrested, he actually predicted it. Long before he was arrested, three years prior to that, he told his apostles, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested by the elders. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to be raised again the third day. It was part of the plan. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. In John chapter 10, verse number 17, Jesus said this, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. That's part of him becoming a servant. He willingly became a servant, and he said, I will. The one who had never had to obey before said, I will obey. The one who never had to succumb before said, I will succumb. The one who had never had to serve before said, I will serve. And the one who had never died before said, it's part of the plan, and I will die. Once again, we see the obedience of the servant, even in death. His sacrifice was for our benefit. You know, just as those seals gave their lives so those boys might live, Jesus gave his life that we 
might surely live. He became a servant for us. He succumbed for us. A sacrifice for us. The least we can do is repent and be born again. He became insignificant so that we could be significant. He became non-essential so he could make us essential. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says. It says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Jesus, the Lord of lords, King of kings, has everything. Though he was rich, the Bible says, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You know what would have impressed me about our rulers during the pandemic as they were telling us, shut down your business, quit whining about it. It would have impressed me if they would have said, you know what, we're all in this together. We're not receiving a paycheck either. Become poor so that others could benefit. But no, instead, somehow they became wealthier during all of this. Not our Savior. He became poor, a servant. Didn't even have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. I don't even have a pillow, he said. That is a gracious Savior. For your sakes, he became poor. So that through his poverty, ye might be rich. First Peter 2.24, Peter writes, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's the cross. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. Repeating what Isaiah said. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he became sin for us though he knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus died so that we could live. Remember the wages of sin is death. Made the comment earlier, there's not a one of us here that is perfect. Uh, Nobody's perfect. You're right, nobody's perfect. And because of that, the Bible says we're all, we all have to pay for our sins. Oh, but God the Son became a servant. He served. He succumbed. He sacrificed. He paid the price for all my sins and all of yours. He became poor so that I could be rich. He died so I could live. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a king I want to serve. One who served me. That's a Messiah I want to accept. One who became poor. Who doesn't say we're all in this together. Meanwhile, he's getting richer. He became poor so that I could be rich. He died on the cross so I don't have to. He experienced total separation from God the Father so I don't have to. He paid the price for my sins so I don't have to. But he says unless a man be born again. Just because he died doesn't make me saved. It's a gift of God. Thank the Lord I don't have to work for it, but I do have to receive it. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Could we have every head bowed and every eye closed? With every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask you, is this not the Messiah that you want to have, that you want to serve? The one who died on the cross so you could be saved. The one who was raised again so he could save you. The one who lived the perfect life. Who emptied himself of all of his wealth. 